What a great word to get into the word. Why did you come this morning? Do you believe that God wants to speak to you right now? Do you believe that right now where you're sitting, God wants to give you what you need for today? That he is kind of saying, if you're willing to let the past go right now today, we can start fresh. I can give you a fresh word. If you're willing to break out of the routine and out of the numbness and out of the apathy with me right now, we can have a fresh word. So why don't we stand to honor the reading of God's word for this morning. It comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat, right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Jesus, we're here because we need you. More than food, more than anything else, more than entertainment, we need you. You're the center of everything that is good in our life. Every joy that we feel comes from you. We need more of you. Every solution to any problem we have comes from you. We need more of you. Every difficulty we have, you solve. We need more of you. Come, Lord Jesus. We declare, God, that these words are words given from you with your spirit, that we would know your heart, that we could hear you speak right into each one of our lives. So come and speak. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, our narrative that we just read, it starts off by telling us that Jesus returned to Capernaum and everyone quickly found out that he was back home, or the original Greek can be translated back in the house. Whose home is this? We know it's not the home that Jesus grew up in. It is not the home of his mother Mary, because their home was in the city of Nazareth. So it's probably Peter's home. We learned in chapter 1, right before this account, that Jesus was in Capernaum. He went to Peter's, Peter's other name is Simon. He went to Peter's home and he healed Peter's mother-in-law from a crippling fever. So because of that healing, people from the town started bringing all the sick people and all the demon-possessed people to Peter's home, and Jesus healed them for multiple days. Then Jesus left. He traveled around the region doing his ministry And then he returned to Capernaum, and the author says he was back home. We know that the gospel of Mark, which is what we just read, is Peter's gospel. Mark was Peter's scribe. Peter did not have a lot of formal education. He worked with his hands. And so he wasn't the best writer. And so Mark helped Peter write down the life and the teachings of Jesus from Peter's perspective. And so it makes sense that Peter would say, Jesus was back home at my house. Jesus is at Peter's house, and soon the house is so packed with people that people are crammed outside. They're trying to peer in and hear Jesus teach. I mean, what a scene. I wish I could have been there. In the midst of Jesus' teaching, all of a sudden, dirt and debris start falling on people who are in the house, 
And soon there is a hole big enough in the roof that a grown man laying on a mat can be lowered right into the room in front of Jesus. Try to picture a hole big enough in a roof where a grown man laying on a mat can be lowered right in front of Jesus. Jesus, the God of hospitality, immediately does the first thing that is needed to open up all of who he is to this man. He forgives his sins. Now, I stopped reading the narrative at this point. Some of you Bible folks are like, what are you doing, Pastor? There's a lot more to this story. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing right now, okay? So just hold on. I want to stop and honor Peter and his family for their incredible hospitality. My wife and I, Maggie, we love to host in our home. We got our home years ago before home prices went out the roof uh, here in L.A., and we got it years ago, and even back then, we knew it was a miracle that we got this home. And so we, uh, we've always said, okay, this home is for the community. It is for people. And so we have had many gatherings in our home over the years, small parties to life groups to, we've had a couple hundred plus people parties that are all over our property. We've had people living with us for a month to a few months to a few years and in the spirit of the hospitality, we have said, in the spirit of Jesus, people are more important than stuff. So during the parties, when people break things, we're like, hey, that's just what happens when you put people above stuff. Uh, I remember years ago when our kids were little and they had their little Lego stuff, uh, some of the kids that were over the house at our parties destroyed their Legos. They had built their little Lego up. That was a tough conversation with our kids. Try to help them see, yeah, we love the, the, those kids more than we love your Legos. And next time, just hide your Legos. You know, I don't know what to say, you know. Um, but we have had uh, people drink too much and uh, mess up stuff in our house, burn a cigarette hole in, in a chair. Uh, we've had somebody walk right through a screen door with purpose. I mean, he just walked right through that screen door, busted that thing, didn't even see it. Uh, stuff's, you know, stained uh, from spills, all that stuff. But if someone started hacking on my roof with a chainsaw, I don't have that in me yet. Okay, if someone just started destroying my roof, I just don't have that in me yet. There's a limit that I still have. I am in awe of Peter's and his family and their hospitality. And remember, this is now the second wave of the entire town camping out at their house for what is probably multiple days. And remember, y'all, this is not just like a party with their friends. This is all the sick people in their town. This is all the demon-possessed people in their town. I don't have it in me yet to have all those people all over my house. But I want it. I want to be at that level. Because in the midst of feeling the sacrifice and the uncomfortability and the inconvenience, deep down I am in awe of this kind of hospitality, this kind of love. This is a supernatural level of welcoming people into your life and making them feel more important than you and more important than your stuff. See, it's Peter and his family now imitating Jesus, who just a chapter earlier was approached by a leper, a leper who had an extremely contagious, painful skin disease, who came up to Jesus and said, 
I know you have the power to heal me, but I'm not sure if you want to. And Jesus' first emotional reaction was compassion, not fear. And then his first physical reaction was to reach out and touch a man who had not received touch in years. Jesus draws people in. He welcomes people in, even when it is uncomfortable and difficult and inconvenient. Peter is now doing the same with his house. Francis and Edith Schaefer. Edith, that's, you know we're going back in history a little bit, okay? Francis and Edith Schaefer, they moved to Switzerland in 1948 as Christian missionaries. Francis had actually become disillusioned with the Christian culture in America that he was around. It was a Christian culture and a church that talked about the Bible but didn't live it out. He was a true deconstructionist of his day. Uh, but instead of just walking away and tearing it all down and living sort of in this constant tension and unresolved convictions, we have a lot of folks today, y'all, in America who are deconstructing their faith. They're not happy with what they see in their church, and they usually have a right criticism. You, we, we have a lot of churches, unfortunately, that are just focused on one aspect of the Bible, one aspect of the kingdom of God, and they're ignoring everything else. And we've got a lot of people going, wait a minute, this is not, this isn't good. I don't like this kind of religious experience I'm going through, and so I'm walking away and figuring something out. The problem is people are staying in that place. They're staying in that place of, yeah, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing and have my own spirituality because the church is all messed up. If you are a Bible-believing person, if you believe that the Bible is the sacred text, you cannot follow Jesus without the church. You just can't do it. The Bible says that the church is the body of Jesus, right? And so what we have to do is then do what Francis, he did. He got all disillusioned with the church, deconstructed everything, but then what he did was he actually studied the Scripture on his own and determined to reconstruct an authentic discipleship. He said, I am going to really get into the Scripture more, not less. Most deconstructionists that I talk to today have not even been in the Bible at all. They're just angry, and I understand their anger, but they're stuck in that place, and they're moving farther and farther and away from God. He got into the Bible said, I'm going to now reconstruct an authentic faith that comes from the Bible. And so he and his wife in uh, Switzerland started just taking in young people who were disillusioned in life, who had left their homes, who were living on the streets. They, they were questioning everything about life. He's like, I know where you're at. Come and live with us. And because the Schaefers realized that to follow Jesus, that the God who created us is a God that just welcomes all people in without limits. And so they started just building this radical hospitality. Pretty soon, their home was so overrun that they had to try to expand where they lived to take in more folks. And their purpose was simply sacrificial hospitality of Jesus at no charge. Within three years of doing this, all of the stuff that they had gotten from their wedding, they had just gotten married for their home, was all destroyed. Drug use in their home and sick people brought all kinds of damage and destruction to their stuff. Uh, but they were famous for their radical hospitality and the long conversations about Jesus around a big meal or a fireside chat in their backyard. 
They believed that the truth of Jesus could not be communicated without the hospitable love of the kingdom. And as a result, many of these young drifters became followers of Jesus. But even those who did not convert to Christianity, they said that the Schaefers had all the integrity in the world to preach about Jesus. That they would sit there and listen and ask questions because they had never seen human beings be so radically sacrificial cleaning up people's vomit all the time. They said that they, 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 they saw people come into the Schaefer's house who were intentionally using them, taking advantage of them, manipulating them, and the Schaefer's knew it, and they continued to love them and give them the best that they had. After Jesus forgives this man's sins, the religious leaders of his day who are there, they start criticizing Jesus in their minds and rightfully so. you got to remember, Jesus is brand new on the scene. He's a common-looking man. There's nothing different about him than a common man in their town. He does not have the formal education that these men have, and he's attracting the kind of crowds that these religious men want to attract by teaching them the ways of God, which these religious men are also doing. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. Dave's right here in front, so I'm just using Dave, right? They look at him, and Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and says, all of your sins are forgiven. And these religious, it's like it's one thing for Jesus to say, Dave, the sins you committed against me that hurt me, I forgive you. But Jesus is saying, no, all the sins, Dave, of your entire life that you did to everybody, I forgive you, Right? And so these religious leaders, right from their minds, are like, well, wait a minute, only God can forgive all the sins. Who does this guy think he is? Well, Jesus, because he's God in human form, he knows their critical thoughts in the minds right there in this house. And so in front of everyone, he tells them, hey, hey, don't question. Let me prove to you that I have the authority, the deity to forgive all sins. He then commands the paralyzed man with his voice. He doesn't touch him, doesn't give him medicine. He doesn't call and pray to some other power. He just says, get up, start walking, take your mat and go home. And the paralyzed man jumps up and everyone starts praising God in awe and wonder. If you give yourself to an honest, devoted relationship with Jesus, you will never stop being in awe and amazement at what you experience through him. He is more than your mind can comprehend. He contains all the aspects of who God is, the God who created and sustains the universe, and yet he's so personal, he's so gentle, he's so wise and so close. He doesn't stay in some faraway galactic throne room. He hangs out in your house forgiving and healing. And in hanging out in your house as a common man, he brings a whole new way of living, an entirely new kingdom to declare your allegiance to. At the center of his kingdom is love, but it is not this hallmark, cheesy little poetry love that just makes us feel good. It's specifically a sacrificial love that just brings people close, close to him as God and then close to each other as family. This kingdom love, it's a generous love. It's a vulnerable love. It's a personalized, thoughtful empowering, shame-free kind of love. It is a love that welcomes, that welcomes all the diversity and brokenness that we can live in. It doesn't have boundaries or limits or filters. 
It is a love of hospitality. Hospitality. Think of somebody in your family that is like, they are so hospitable. People love going over to their house because they just do so much to make us feel so valuable. Hospitality at its heart, it's just welcoming and receiving someone into your heart, into your life, sometimes your literal house. It's opening up your world, your stuff, your time, and your energy in such a way that others feel very valuable, sometimes more valuable than you. Hospitality is making someone feel special, important, valuable. I can't say it enough. Hospitality is extending the lines, extending the limits of who you will love. Hospitality goes beyond being generous with people you like, and it chooses to be generous with people that are difficult to like. Do not tell me that you have the love of Jesus if you only love people who are like you. Do not tell me you have the love of Jesus if you just love people who love you back. Pagan people love people they like. People who are very evil love people who hook them back up. There is nothing supernatural in your spirit if you're just loving people who are similar to you and if you're just loving people who love you back. I was a young pastor at USC. Fight on. Fight on. Time for the Big Ten. Let's go. I was a young pastor at USC. It's where I got my training to be a pastor. Pastoring uh, at a college campus is a high-energy job, and it is lots of fun, especially when you're young enough to still have the energy to roll with those college kids. In fact, uh, Candace was a student of mine over there. Ooh, I could tell you some stories. <laughs> One of my favorite moments of the year was going for a one-week conference at the end of the school year, because at the end of the school year, the students are in a great mood. They've just finished their finals. It's summertime, and it's right, right after the finals are over, before the summer starts. We, we would go away, usually to Catalina Island, where there's this campsite over there, and we would be there for about six days. And I would get to lead a group of students in a study of Scripture, and we would be together for about eight total hours in a day with meal breaks and free time. Now, some of you are thinking eight hours of studying the Bible a day. No, it, is, it was the best time because... We would have so much fun, so many laughs. We would go so deep in the scripture. We would be so vulnerable with each other. And Jesus would just always show up. We would be crying together, praying for each other. We would be kind of in our minds blown from, from who God was as we really studied it together. And we would form this group. We would be together for six days in this way. We would form these deep friendships. Well, most of the students at this conference I already knew from uh, throughout the school year, from our being in community with them. But every once in a while, we would get some new students who I didn't know who would just come to the conference. Well, one year, a new woman joined our conference and right away made things very difficult for me and everybody else. She just came with an attitude. I don't know the best way. To, I don't know how to. It, she just came. She had a snarl on her face. She was angry all the time. She was super critical. She was always popping off. I mean, first day, she just comes right out of the jump, criticizing what we're doing, criticizing people and their comments. 
And I'm like constantly as the leader having to try to absorb this and be like, okay, no, no, we're okay here. Let's, let's not be so unkind and, you know, trying to do this. And, you know, it's the first time in the study and you're trying to, you know, make it smooth for everybody. She would shut people down as they're trying to get really vulnerable. So then I started like, who is this person? And then I started noticing around camp during the mealtimes, she didn't have any friends that I could see. And then we go the second day, right? And it's just going again. And now I'm getting more and more frustrated. Now you got to understand, Pastor Chris today, I would have dealt with this the very first session. Okay, I would not have let this happen. But young pastor, I'm trying to be nice and I'm scared of conflict. And this woman is pretty dang scary. Okay, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, but... So I'm like working myself up because the studies are just getting tanked. And I'm like, you know what? That's it, man. I'm going to tell her she's out. I mean, I can't send her home because we're on an island. You know what I mean? I'm stuck for six days. But she can just hang out on herself and not be in the study if she's going to act like this crazy attitude, right? And so I'm kind of working myself up when all of a sudden I get a tap on my shoulder. And there she is. She goes, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, dang. And I'm, and I'm like, we sit down, and I kind of brace myself for her to just blast me, but now I'm also kind of ready to just be like, you know, here we go. You're out of control. And all of a sudden, she just starts, sits down, she just starts pouring out her pain. So earlier in that year, she had tried to get a, a really large mole that was on her face removed because the mole made her feel so insecure, but it kept getting uh, infections. And so she had multiple surgeries so she always had to walk around with tape and, and a gauze on her face, which is how she was uh, at, at this camp. Her roommate had left her earlier in the year, and she was living alone with no friends on campus. She kept trying to organize social stuff to meet people, but nobody would ever come. So she came to the camp trying to make a friend. And then this is where it hit me. She just Then she starts crying, and she just goes, I don't know what my problem is. I'm so argumentative. I'm so angry all the time. I'm trying to stop and not be like that. And she just starts crying and crying and crying. And then she kind of falls into me because the crying is getting harder and harder. I was so shocked. This whole conversation is listening to her. I never said a word. I just, then she's crying at me and I have no words. And all of a sudden I can feel it welling up in my heart. And I'm like, oh my, no way. And here we go. And next thing I know, I'm crying, I'm crying. And now we are both bawling. I mean, just shaking, crying. And I don't know how long we were crying, but all, you know, eventually at some point, she's, we're done, and she leaves to go to the bathroom to clean herself up. She found me later, and she said that uh, that was the best thing that she experienced all year long, just knowing that someone cared for her. And after that point, it's like her entire posture and her heart just changed. She became warm and welcoming. And every day for the rest of the camp, towards the end of the day, she would find me and she would make a point to come and say hi and say, hey, Pastor, I'm having a great day today. And she left the camp with some friends. And I walked away from that and I was like, dang, Jesus, you are truly a hospitable God. I tried to push her away, and you pulled her in close, literally pulled her in close to me. True hospitality is the heart of the kingdom of God. The key difference between the best hospitality of this world 
And the hospitality of the kingdom of God is that in our world, the level of hospitality you receive is usually in proportion to what you can offer, what you can pay for. So literally, if you want to go to a hotel and not lift a finger, you just got to pay more and more and more money. I mean, you could, you could go to these very posh places and they will do everything for you. Um, even in the normal type of hospitality and friendships, often the best hospitality is only reserved for those friends who return the same level of generosity. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. You did this for my birthday, I will do that for your birthday. In contrast, in the kingdom of God, we receive the best hospitality and we don't pay for it. Jesus is both the one giving us the lavish hospitality and paying for it all. He doesn't receive anything in return. You can't give God anything. We're, we, we can't give him anything. Do you, you realize he did not create us because he needed us? He was perfectly fine and happy in the Trinity. There's just so much love in the nature of God, it just exploded out to create more things to love. He just can't help himself. Love defined in the kingdom of God is active. It just has to love people. Not only has Jesus done the work on the cross to forgive our sins so that he can justly welcome us into his world, but he's always actively going to us, inviting us, pleading with us, coming over to our house saying, I want to share everything I have with you. Please stop turning your back on me. In fact, in one of Jesus' teaching about his kingdom and the nature of God, in Luke 14, he tells the story of a man who prepares this lavish feast and this huge party, sends out invitations, and everybody declines them with stupid excuses uh, because we're all stupid, okay? Let's just, that's just what sin is. It just makes you stupid. And in response, the man who uh, uh, ran the party, he didn't sulk or cancel the party and think, oh, nobody loves me. His character can't be in that place. He's totally secure and content. He's like, I don't need anybody. I just want to love people. So then he just starts sending all of his servants out in this parable and say, he uses the word compel. Go out to the streets. Go as far as you can. I don't care who they are. Get them into my house because I just love to love. I just love to love. He is the complete opposite of the individual-focused, independent, boundaried life. He's always welcoming and giving and sharing and bringing people close, making people feel special and important. That is who God is to you and to your neighbor, the most difficult of all of them. And that's who followers of Jesus are transformed into. As we follow him, as we declare allegiance to his kingdom, as we receive his spirit into our minds and hearts and souls, we slowly move from me and mine to, to they and them. It's about me and mine to they and them. We move from closed and guarded to open and welcoming. We move from needing others to make us feel special to needing to make others feel special. Right? Others are the treasure. Hospitality is at the center of the mission of Jesus that is to bind our friendships together. Most friendships are connected through hobbies, interests, and shared experiences. That's great. Jesus-centered friendships can have all those characteristics. 
but a distinctive of friends in the church is what binds us together is a common mission of practicing hospitality toward each other, but then toward new folks that enter into our community, and then toward those outside of the church who are not with Jesus. We are to be known as those who welcome all the time. We are to be known as the people who are always adding to our friendship circles. That is one way. Do you want to, if you want to know, how am I doing with God? Are you adding to your friendship circles? If you have gotten to the point in your life where you're just like, I got my friends, got my church friends, got my work friends, got my family, I'm good. You are drifting away from the spirit and the heart of God and the purpose that he has made you for. We are to be living in an abundance mentality that we always have more time and love and generosity for another person. The longer we are friends with someone at church, the more secure we should be in welcoming more people into our friendship circles. Not the longer we're friends with people, the more we get all insular and cliquish, and it's just about our friendship we've had for seven years, and we've shared all of our pain together, and we're the only ones that know each other, and that's it. That's great. Keep having that. But then we are to be secure to say, let's Who's God put in our lives to welcome us into our friendship circles? Romans 12, 13 commands us, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Share with the Lord's people. That's church people. That's church family who are in need. Practice hospitality. Share with the Lord's people. See, we are to create the kind of hospitable culture in this church that when people in our blood families hear about it, they're like, what the heck? You know, we've had that at times, at seasons at New Life, where members of the blood family are like, wait, your church is giving you how much money for what? Yeah, people of the church came together to take care of this particular crisis that I'm going through. And it's this light to the blood family going, but they're not even blood family. Why would they do that? Because we're living in the spirit of God that just has to be generous. It has to love. It's got to welcome people in like family. That is our purpose. Share with the Lord's people who are in need practice hospitality. I have known groups of, I've heard of groups of parents with small children who kind of decide on a Saturday to go to a park with their kids and they bring extra food and snacks to intentionally uh, interact with the random parents who are also at the playground at the same time and just invite their parents and their kids uh, to eat together, to just build friendships. If you haven't figured out by now, if you're a parent of a young child, it's like having a dog. You can just meet people with kids. You know what I mean? I mean, I just, when my kids were smaller, it was just so easy. And so you can decide to just kind of, hi, how you doing? Great, yes, my kid is cute, you know what I mean? Great, don't touch him. You're going to make him sick. Or you can really open up your family and expect to build friendships and to do your part to just ask some questions and invite them to hang out with you. I know of a, uh, uh, some of us have a mutual friend who lives out in Pomona, who li- they, they live this spirit of hospitality out. And when they got married, they decided to have their reception at a park in Pomona that had the most amount of folks that were living in the park. And so they had this reception, and all the folks who live in the park, they thought that this was just like another one of those churches bringing like food for the day. And they showed up to get in line, and they realized it was a wedding reception, and they were welcome not only to eat food, but to dance with everybody and to toast the bride and the groom and to have the cake. And they built friends right there through their wedding reception. That's God. That's God right there. Worship team, come on back up. 
We practice hospitality here among the church, always open up our hearts, our time, our stuff to, to all who call this our spiritual home, their spiritual home. And then together, we practice hospitality in creative ways that work in our context. We are the ones, church, that should create social events that gather people to deepen new friendships. If you haven't figured it out by now, we are living in a time when people are dying for friendships. We are the most lonely generations of any generations that's lived in this country. We are dying for real friendships. There's lots of reasons for that. We don't want to get into it now, but we're saying the church, this is the time for us to get out of our therapeutic mindsets and our consumer mentality and to say, Lord Jesus, is enough for me to extend myself to welcome people into my world and into the world of my friends. We practice it together. Many decades later, towards the end of Peter's life, when Jesus is now in spirit form, Peter writes to the first Jesus-centered churches, he writes to all of us Jesus followers, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Give everything you got to people without grumbling is what he's saying. Be radically generous with your time and your energy and your stuff without grumbling. Don't grumble when people push your boundaries. Don't grumble when you don't have as much independent time during the week. Don't grumble when it's hard to connect with people who are very different. Don't grumble when you don't sleep as much because people are always calling you up and wanting to talk about their problems. Don't grumble when people stay too long at your place. Don't grumble when they leave and you've got a mess to clean up. Don't grumble when nobody's asked you about you for a week and you kept asking them about them. Don't grumble as you live in the shadow of Jesus. I think Peter says that. He's like, don't grumble. Keep sacrificing and keep giving because I think he gets, he's trying to say at the end of his life, church, when I was growing up with Jesus, my house was the most trashed house in the neighborhood. The fools destroyed my roof. It was the most trashed house in the neighborhood. But Jesus, the God of the universe, lived in my house. He lived there. He can live in your life if you follow him to love other people. I think he's saying, don't grumble. He's saying, at the end of your life, be able to say, I trashed my life so that other people could feel like treasure. I trashed my house so that other people could feel like treasure. I trashed my life so that people could feel that they are treasure in the heart of God. Oh, that we would have the heart of Jesus. This is not a grinded out let me just try to love past my boundaries. We can't do it in our own strength. We need a supernatural spirit of Jesus day in and day out. We've got to learn how to access his spirit when our limits get pushed to say, Lord Jesus, only you would go farther. And so please, you take me farther. We have to keep receiving the radical generosity of Jesus to us so that we pour that generosity out, not we're starving just trying to work it out in our flesh. Oh, that we would learn that Jesus sees us as his treasure. He gives everything day after day so that we have an abundance to keep giving everything. Stand with me, church. This is the time to access his spirit. 
you have heard his word. I don't know what's all going on in each of your lives as I look at you, but the Lord Jesus does. I don't know what was hard for you with this word, but the Lord Jesus does. I don't know what part of this word there's something stirred up in you, but the Lord Jesus does. This is the time now to ask for his spirit. If you have fears, ask him to destroy those fears. If you know you've got limits, ask him to stretch you. If you are thirsty, if you have not received the love of Jesus in a while, oh man. In fact, as we worship, we're going to do a couple songs here. If you know that you are thirsty for this spirit of Jesus, that you have been just living with your own strength and it's causing you to have limits with people, maybe you're more cranky than you should or you're just, please come to the front and just worship up here and you coming to the front will tell our leaders, I just want more of the spirit of Jesus. I want to live in that spirit and we will just come around and just pray over you. We'll just pray the spirit of Jesus over you. We will be family to each other. This front is opened up. Just come, worship. You can just worship standing. You can sit in the front row. You can kneel. This is your time. He loves you way more than you think. And it is him alone that will help you love more than you can believe you can love. Come, Holy Spirit of God. This is your time. Come, Holy Spirit. This is your time. Come, fill our hearts. Come, draw us close. You always draw us in. You never push us out. So draw us in right now. Draw us in. Take away shame. Change us from the inside.